Good afternoon. This is Mark Vines, and welcome to the Mark Vines Show. And you can join us on Facebook um, on for the Mark Vines Show, or you can see us on Rumble and also on Parlor. Still on Facebook as well, but we'll see how long that lasts. So today's a pretty exciting day for me, and I know it's going to be an exciting day for you. I finally was able to get uh, Daniel Gade to come on the the podcast. Uh, very very busy busy gentleman these days, and as you can tell from his bio, he's just a busy man in, in general. In fact, I was just sitting here talking to him trying to figure out how I refer to him is it doctor is it lieutenant colonel is it mister is it not really sure but I think that we're just going to go with uh, Daniel Gade but very impressive individual and he is somebody that I have been following for a period of time now following the political campaign and um, just by way of background and I know that he's going to introduce himself a bit more but he's retired from the U.S. Army he's lieutenant colonel he's a professor currently and in a public policy leader running to serve for the Commonwealth of Virginia in the United States States Senate. During more than 20 years of military service, he was awarded the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and two Purple Hearts, and we'll talk about that. So Daniel graduated from West Point in 1997, and I'm not going to hold that against him being a Navy guy myself, but that's very impressive in and of itself, and he served in uh, multiple locations in the United States and Korea. So now, before I introduced uh, Daniel to you, uh, I am going to just go back a little bit because a lot of you know that have been listening to this podcast for a while. I have felt for a very, very long time that one of the problems in our government today is that we do not have people of service. And I mean people who have served in the service, whether it be police, EMT, fire, first responders, and the military. We do not have enough of those people in the government itself. And I have felt that way because I am appalled it, it what has been happening to our government in the last 20 years. I'll go back. I'm appalled by it. And I think that not, people who are in government that have not served oftentimes don't have the buy-in that many of those that have served have. And I have devoted my entire adult life, and I know Daniel has devoted his entire adult life to the service of this nation. And when you serve our nation, it just changes you. It just does. And I have served with uh, people in higher levels of government, um, in law enforcement, that I am not sure that they have that same level of commitment. And I've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast, and we're going to talk about that a bit more. But uh, back in December, I was listening to a podcast, or not a podcast, but a radio show, The Larry O'Connor Show, which is here in the Washington, D.C. area. And Daniel Gade was on there, and he was talking about a new PAC political action committee that he had come up with, new mission pack, and we're going to talk about that today. And I was intrigued by it because the mission um, loosely states that it's about getting people of service into government, and that's the mission. And so with that, we're going to talk about that a bit more. Uh, Daniel Gade, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on. Did I get that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, you got everything right. Yep, you got everything right. Uh, the only part in my bio that you got wrong was that I am not currently running to serve the uh, people of Virginia uh, as I was defeated in the November election. But, you know, the, the day after the election, I woke up in the greatest country on earth and yeah. got back to fighting for our values uh, yeah. like I've always done. And so I started a new mission pack to promote good policy for veterans, but also to help veterans get elected in 2021 in Virginia and beyond uh, in 2022 and, and beyond. So 
you know, I think veterans do bring something really interesting to the political conversation. And that's kind of a sense of unity, a, a sense of, of service above self. And far too many politicians are interested only in serving themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So what brought you here? How did we get to this point? Uh, I know your background, but uh, many of our listeners, if they're new, uh, just kind of in a nutshell, what brought Daniel Gade to where we are today? Well, so I was raised in a family that uh, was, we were poor, but we, my parents loved each other and they loved America and we had, you know, the Bible and the constitution and that was good enough, you know? And so I was raised to be somebody who believed in serving others. And so the soonest, as soon as I got a chance to do that, I did. And I joined the U.S. Army when I was 17 years old. I enlisted before I'd even graduated from high school and then uh, went to basic training and, and then that and then came back to finish high school. And then was and then was supposed to go into the army after that, into the regular army. But um, instead, I was accepted to West Point. So I went to West Point and went through basic training two summers in a row. Um, but the basic idea was was that I'm somebody who serves others. And so I did that through 20 plus years of military service. And then when I was asked by some people whether I would consider running for office, uh, I considered that a form of service. And so I chose to say yes, and uh, eventually was the Republican standard bearer for the, uh, for the Commonwealth in 2020. So now the rest of your story in, in your career, and by the way, I didn't realize that you had enlisted first and then came back and then went to the, the military academy. The very sure. impressive. Yep. Yeah, I didn't. I did yep. not realize realize that part of your story. Um, so, for those of you that don't know, going through uh, basic training is bad enough. One time, doing it a second time is <laughs> that's really rough. But yeah, not as rough yeah. as some of the other things that you went through in your life. Yeah. So after I uh, graduated from West Point, I did basically regular army stuff for a while for a couple of years. Um, in two thousand one, actually, as a young army captain. I got a chance to go to ranger school uh, at the, one of the army's hardest schools and was the honor grad of my ranger school class. And then I went to Korea and I was serving in Korea uh, in from summer of uh, fall of 2001 through, through uh, summer of 2004. And that's when I was uh, deployed with my tank company uh, to the Repu to, to Iraq from the Republic of Korea. So I got to Iraq in August or, or in, I got to Kuwait in August and got to Iraq around September 1st and was wounded in action on November 10th, 2004 by a rocket propelled grenade that hit my tank during a firefight. And then uh, two months later, I was wounded again, uh, this time by a roadside bomb, which cost me my entire right leg and basically a year in the hospital. Wow. Um, and how many surgeries did you have? Oh, like uh, lost track, but something like 45. Oh, 40, 45, something like that. Yeah. That is, that is unbelievable. But your army career did not stop there, did it? That's right. So I, uh, I have a hard head and I chose to stay in the army primarily because I love the army and I always have. And secondarily, because I didn't want the enemy to be the ones who determined when I got out of the army. So I wasn't going to quit just because I got my leg blown off. I instead was going to continue to serve because that's what I do. That's who I am. I'm a servant. Yeah, and I and I love it. I, I love the determination and the tenacity that you have. And uh, even after all of those surgeries and, and all the physical wounds that you had, you went on to compete in triathlons, didn't you? Yeah, so I uh, uh, basically, 
I started hand cycling the same year as I got hurt uh, in January or in, in uh, 2005. And then in 2006, I picked it up a little more. And I think I did my first triathlon in, in like maybe 2007 or so. And by 2008, I was doing half Ironman level triathlons. And that's when I, um, in actually summer of 2000, so I did a whole bunch of half Ironmans using a hand cycle. And then in 2010, I learned to ride an upright, upright bike again with just with one leg. I just clip in and go. And that year I did, uh, I was the world champion in my category at Ironman 70.3 Clearwater, Florida. That's a that's a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike, and a and a half marathon at the end. I did that and and won my category. And then a week later, I did Ironman Arizona, all with one leg. So well, uh, yeah, Ironman. Uh, so you mean full full Ironman? A full Ironman. Yeah. So I'm a, <laughs> okay. I'm an Ironman. Uh, so I, I those do that don't know sure. the triathlon world, uh, what we're talking about this is I this is uh, triathlon speak a 2.4 mile swim, one 112 on the bike, and a marathon. Oh, by the way. That's in one day. That's not multiple days. Yeah, that's in one that's day. Right. I did it all in about 12 hours, just about 12 hours. Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't remember my exact time, but it was in the 12-hour range. I I, uh, I kind of toy around with uh, uh, triathlon a bit myself, and, and I always tell my wife that the reason why I, I do triathlon is so I don't just suck at one event. I can actually suck at three events. Uh, it's better. I didn't know you did triathlon. I, it, I, I love it. It's a great sport. It is, but I've never done a full Ironman, and that's why I, that is – uh, I, I, there's no way I could complete a full Ironman right now. In fact, it's doubtful whether I could complete a half, but you've done, you've done something that I haven't done physically and I've got two legs. So yeah, that is so phenomenal. A, a half, yeah. A half is achievable. A full Ironman requires real dedication. Um, but a half is achievable. I mean, ultimately, you know, a reasonably good triathlete can do a half in five hours or so, five and a half hours. So it's not the end of the world. It's worse than a marathon, but it's not, uh, it's not as bad as a full Ironman. Oh my gosh! Well, that is so impressive. But you know what I love about that is it says that you have that tenacity to come into and the endurance to come into a state like Virginia. Now, when I just just by way of background, before I went into the FBI, I got out of the Navy. I got out of the Navy in 1996, and I settled into the Washington D.C. area because my wife was also a naval officer, and uh, but she stayed in, and so we ended up back in the D.C. area. And that was when I started my law enforcement career, and I was a, a, a Washington D.C. police officer, and uh, we lived on the Maryland side, and I said to my wife, because I by then I'd been hired by the FBI, and I figured at some point I would have to come back to the Washington, D.C. area. And my wife and I agreed that we would end up in Virginia because, at the time, Virginia was the conservative state. And me being a conservative person politically, I thought, well, I want to be in the conservative state. Well, I come back a little over 10 years later, and I did not recognize the place. And and we are in Virginia now, and and that's where you are. And, and if if any of you across the country or across the world don't realize it, but Virginia has become very, very blue, which means it's very Democrat-oriented. And Daniel uh, ran... Uh, in the United States Senate against uh, uh, Warner, um, which is which was a very very tough race to have, but it would take somebody with that Iron Man spirit and endurance to do something like that, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, look, you know, when I was making the decision to run, and I hope whoever's listening will take this under consideration. But when I was making the decision to run, I was given great advice by somebody, and I want to pass that advice on. And the advice was, 
either our values are worth fighting for or they're not. So it doesn't actually matter whether you win or not. What matters is, are you, are you fighting for our, our values? You know, mm-hmm. so if, if you, if you look at the odds, the odds of a, you know, newcomer to politics in a blue state in a year with a very unpopular president on the ballot, um, winning against a two-term incumbent with a gazillion dollars of his own money, chances of that are relatively slim, but, but either I'm fighting for our values or I'm not. And so I kept that in mind. I kept fighting for our values and I'm proud of the race I ran. Yeah, and you you did. And I agreed with everything. I don't know that you have a policy that I don't agree with. And yeah, that's funny. That's yeah, great. no, I well, because we do. We have very, very similar backgrounds. But what were the things that uh, were at the top of your list? What What were you, what did you find the biggest sort of maybe policy challenge when you went up against Warner? What, how was that? Well, it was never a policy. There was never a policy challenge um, in the sense that whenever you know, I debated him three times mm-hmm. and I would say that in two of those debates, I beat him obviously and soundly. And in the third, I think it was a, you know, kind of a draw, I would say. But the bottom line is that he didn't beat me on policy. He beat me on the size of his megaphone. So uh, if you think about it this way, basically it doesn't matter how good your message is if you're yelling into a popcorn box. And because of money, I was yelling into a popcorn box. You know, I wasn't able to really get the get the message out in a way that was sufficient to win the race. What were your obstacles in getting that message out? Well, again, I mean, primarily money. So the the National Party had told me at the beginning, and and for those of you out there, you know, I've got this pack, and I'm going to tell you why to support the pack. But what? Uh, the National Party had told me at the beginning of the race, look, if you can get it within single digits, we'll come alongside you and support you and we'll give you more money from outside. You know, we'll, we'll give you money. I said, great. And I got down to work. And by the end of September, I was able to show that I had the race to within single digits. But uh, the National Party was so much more interested in spending their money on incumbents because incumbents are their special, you know, special somebodies, you know, and uh and so they spent like $50 million on Mitch McConnell's race in Kentucky and $45 million on, on Lindsey Graham's race in South Carolina, even though both those guys won in, in high double digits. And they spent not one red cent on me, even though on paper, you know, I have a PhD in policy. I'm a, you know, I'm a wounded warrior. I only have one leg. You know, you could say war hero. I, I, I just, on paper, I'm the perfect candidate in a sense. And they didn't lift a finger to help. And I started new mission pack is because the outside groups didn't help me. I chose to be, I want to be helpful to others by doing that work with them. Now, do you think that's just because they have written Virginia off or did, did you think that they just did not feel that you were a strong enough candidate? Where do you think that came from? Or maybe a combination of both? Yeah. It had nothing to do with me as a candidate and had everything to do with the fact that they have given up on Virginia and they don't really, um, they don't really care about Virginia. They, they would rather protect incumbents rather than reach for new races. And I find that to be deeply disturbing. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with you on that. And this was a very difficult campaign on a lot of different levels. And some of it, I don't think had anything to do with you or even the party. 
And I noticed this from even my podcast and the work that I do, but social media just doesn't give you the support in the advertisements and the, the airtime that you need either, because it's very, very difficult in particularly Northern Virginia, which is probably the biggest problem that you have, but getting that message out period is difficult. And then not to have the party support you, I think was just hamstrung you. I mean, that was just my yeah. opinion observing it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's right. Um, I think that what's going to happen in the future, and I'm, I'm hoping that the, the people that are in the party are listening, number one, and realize what a strong candidate that you are, and the people that you're bringing on board through the new mission pack. But Something else that I think that we have to do, things like what I'm doing here today with you, this podcast, not just the the big national broadcasters, but even the, the podcasters, and really just finding that new platform to get information out. Because I think that's the wave of the future as far as getting that, that megaphone that you talked about, getting your message out. Because if the people aren't hearing your message, then they aren't going to know who you are. Uh, during election time, and it's I'm, I'm assuming that that's an area that you're you're exploring and pushing hard for over the next few years. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I, one of the things I'm trying to do, really, with this pack is to help other candidates get their campaigns off the ground as fast as possible, mm-hmm. uh, so that they don't have to rely on people who don't care about Virginia in order to you know be successful. So tell us a bit more about uh, mission, the new mission pack. How long has it been around and uh, how is it, how's it going? You know, what's the size and where are you at right now with new mission pack? Well, it's going great. So I'm, I started it right after the election. So I think our paperwork was filed at the end of November or beginning of December. And immediately I was able to raise quite a lot of money to try to help the two U S Senate candidates in Georgia. Um, sadly, both of them lost, but we spent, basically about $100,000 or a little more in Georgia to try to help those candidates. And then, and then we turned, uh, turned our attention towards working uh, to try to help House of Delegates candidates in Virginia this year. So we're, we're raising money, we're doing events, we're trying our best to help these help candidates uh, survive and to, and to thrive. So I'm excited about, I, I really think that this year there's an opportunity to, to flip the House of Delegates back and to, to support good candidates who are who are capable of winning. Yeah, and that that is sorely necessary here in Virginia. And if you could talk a bit, uh, speaking of Virginia, maybe talk about Gov- Governor Northam and some of the things that are going on in Virginia that uh, people may not be paying attention to. Because I have a sense, Daniel, that this this last year was just horrendous as far between COVID and the election. And even if you're the most hardcore political junkie out there, it, it is tough to stay engaged right now. But I do not believe, and I'm sure you don't believe, this is not the time to back off. This is not the time to just lay down and let things happen because we have a lot of serious issues going on right now. Uh, I, frankly, I'm stunned at how quickly uh, we are going down the tubes and and legislation that's being rammed through uh, not only the United States Congress, but here in, in the state of Virginia. It's breathtaking. And this is not the time to take the gas, uh, the foot off the gas pedal. We have to stay informed. We have have to pay attention to what's going on, and we certainly can't give up. But in Virginia, tell us about some of the things that are going on that are catching your eye that you want to uh, 
to work to correct? Well, let's just talk. Uh, I mean, let's talk about how bad Northam is for a second. Um, you know, this is a guy who barely survived his blackface scandal. And probably the only reason he did survive it was because his lieutenant governor was credibly accused of rape by multiple women. And so the, the, it was clear that his lieutenant governor might get rolled up as soon as Northam got rolled up. And then his attorney general also had a blackface scandal of his own. And so that's only part one. Part two is the abortion comments. I mean, this is the guy who said, oh, yeah, you know, if the baby's born, we're going to keep the infant comfortable while a discussion will ensue between the parent and the doctor about what to do. And I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> you're talking about a discussion ensuing about a living human being that you're going to decide to execute or not. And on what crime? The crime of being born to a mother who doesn't want it? I mean, that's absurd. And not. And I just want to go one step further and point yeah. out that on two successive Good Fridays, this Good Friday and the previous year's Good Friday, Rum has signed into law uh, bills which make it easier to uh, commit an abortion in Virginia. So think about that. On Good Friday, I mean, it, it's a deliberate attempt to poke a finger in the eye of conservative Christians by signing abortion bills on Good Friday. Uh, and he's done that two years in a row. So going one step further than that, though, look at COVID. Look at the fact that, you know, they've embraced every big government shutdown you could possibly have in Virginia, including keeping liquor stores open, but closing churches, covering up the fact that Virginia's nursing home death rate is ba about the same as New York's. And that's a huge scandal. It's an, it's, it's a, it's a disaster. And so we've seen what Democrat governance looks like, and it's time to give a Republican the opportunity to, to serve as governor. And this is a guy that's a medical doctor making these well, statements. Yeah, he's, a, he's like a neonatologist. So what that means, what, what's interesting about that is that he, those comments he made about abortion, the reason he was so blasé about it, non, sort of non, he just didn't seem like he thought it was a big deal. What that means is horrifying. What it means is that that's the kind of thing that actually happens all the time in hospitals and people like Ralph Northam are putting babies to death all the time. And that's why he was so easy to, that's why he was so willing to act that way, frankly. And with his background, it just stuns me, you know, again, those of you that listen to this podcast know that it's, addiction is near and dear to my heart. And we, during COVID, because Dan, you just mentioned the, the COVID pandemic, uh, I have uh, long postulated and still postulate that the mental health issue, the mental health crisis that we have going on over this last year far exceeds what we have um, going on with COVID and COVID deaths. And what I mean by that are suicides, uh, people beginning addictions, people relapsing in addictions, uh, people needing to get into to treatment that can't get into treatment. And meanwhile, while all this is going on, uh, Northam pushes uh, legalization of marijuana in Virginia which uh, I could do an entire episode on why that is a bad idea. But again, a medical doctor pushing for this and supporting this policy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, I actually am a little bit libertarian. And so I think that, you know, if adults want to hurt themselves, they should be able to do, mm -hmm. to do that, basically. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody should do marijuana. It's a bad idea. Don't do it. Just like, you know, drinking alcohol is probably a bad idea too. And it certainly is a terrible idea for many people. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I would just say is that what they're doing by locking down schools, by keeping people out of work, by crippling the economy, 
And then by legalizing marijuana is like a perfect storm of stupidity. Right. Because it makes it, it will make things worse for everybody. Yeah. And I know that the marijuana issue is up for debate. Now, again, I have my position on that, but it, but it comes from my, my back, my further background and, and some of the other work I do in my life. And let me, I will, I'll just say that I will, I will do an entire podcast on that in and of itself. But the timing is curious and, and who it's coming from is what I find surprising from a guy with a medical background pushing to have this is is a political move and and i think he's catering to a certain political base that's what's driving it it is not evidence it's not it's not any research-based evidence that he's basing that upon it is simply the political stance he's taking and support and getting support from various groups that helped him stay in office after the scandals that he had because uh, is there any doubt in your mind if he was a republican he would have been out of office already is there any any doubt in your mind in that Oh, oh, no, gosh, no, no doubt in my mind at So I, I think that these political stance, these political issues that he has to maintain the power in office that he had, it is not evidence-based at all. Yeah, you know what's, what's interesting is I've actually had conversations with uh, somebody who's a friend of his. That person said that he is not, by his nature, a radical. He's not, by his nature, a hard leftist. But what the devil's bargain that he struck was after the blackface and abortion scandal, he had to, in order to stay in office, he had to basically agree to give these groups whatever they wanted. And so that's why he's gone so hard left is because he was over a political barrel and he had to do it in order to ensure his political survival. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that whatsoever. And by the way, Governor Northam, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to come on and debate me over uh, marijuana and your stance on marijuana, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But come prepared for that that discussion because uh, you know and I know that you did that to appease a certain political base. That That's what that's all about. Because just like your your position on abortion in with somebody with your education and training, it makes no sense whatsoever. But how about some of the other issues that uh, that are going on in Richmond? What what are the other big ones that that come to your mind? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple big ones. You know, this uh, Virginia version of the Green New Deal is going to uh, spike the spike the energy costs for all Virginians, which is particularly devastating to poor communities. You know, poor and and or rural communities are going to see their rates double or potentially triple. And, you know, it doesn't hurt rich people. It doesn't hurt mm-hmm. the middle, upper middle class people that much. But it, it's going to be crushing to have your energy bill go from $150 to $325 for, for, for groups that are poor, for people who are poor. So that's just one. And by the way, it does nothing to reduce or eliminate global warming. It does nothing to do with keeping the environment clean. It's all just virtue signaling. Yeah. Uh, another thing that they've, that they have, attempted to do a couple of years in a row is to get rid of the fact that Virginia is a right to work state, which means that employers have the ability to fire employees who are not performing up to, up to snuff and that, and that there's, there would be no forced unionization and things like that. Of course you can still voluntarily join a union, but you're not required to in Virginia in order to work. And in some States you are. And so what we see here is, they're trying to get rid of that so that they so that unions, particularly government unions, can be sort of shoved down the throats of the people of Virginia, and, and that would be a that would be a huge blessing to North Carolina and Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia and Maryland. But it would do nothing to help 
Virginia. As a matter of fact, it would make things worse here. And and Virginia has been getting outperformed by North Carolina and Maryland significantly over the past 10 years. Year over year, we're getting outperformed by those states, largely because of our leftist policy coming out of Richmond. What, so what's your prognosis for the upcoming election? Are you holding out hope for the Republican Party? Where, where do you think we stand? Yeah, look, if we, if we nominate somebody who's an, a political outsider, who has money and the ability to inspire not just Republicans, but also independents and a yeah. few soft Ds, then we've got a chance of winning. If we run a race based on, you know, the shorthand for a hard right policy set of policy platforms is, you know, if we run a race on guns, babies, and Trump, that's great if you're running in, you know, Mississippi or Utah or Oklahoma, but it's not going to work in Virginia because we have to admit that Virginia is a state with uh, a pretty diverse political audience. And that means that it's, it's trending towards the blue side unless Unless we can message to the independents and Democrats better, we're going to continue to lose here. And so I'm, there are there is at least one candidate who I think could win statewide, possibly two, but definitely one. And I'm hoping that he is the nominee at the uh, state convention. Mm. Well, what do you think are going to be the big issues, that the hot button issues for the gubernatorial race? Well, I mean, the, the number one thing, of course, is going to be, uh, I, well, I think one of the number one things is going to be getting our kids back to school. Yeah. And getting the economy going again, and, and Northern's been terrible about that. And uh, a Republican would be better. And I think, in particular, Mr. Yunkin is the one with the the business experience and the qualifications to actually lead on that issue. Um, you know, I think people are really fired up about their schools. We see. I live in Fairfax County, and in Fairfax County, they literally hired these babysitters to to be classroom monitors while the kids came back to school, but the teachers taught remotely from wherever they happened to be. So think about that for a second. An unvaccinated babysitter type person for $15 an hour, untrained in classroom discipline, untrained in teaching pedagogy, like not even, who knows if they even had a background check to be around young kids, would would sit in the classroom with kids who are learning on the computer from somebody who's afraid to come out of their house. I mean, that's the danger of that's the danger of teachers. I mean, that's the the problem with teachers unions is 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 the amount of power they wield is all out of whack with respect to their actual skill and expertise. Yeah, I I saw that. And I was stunned, and I thought, is that safer? Who is that safer for? It no, made no sense to me whatsoever. Anybody. No, it's worse for everybody. There's nothing good about it. I mean, it's literally it's literally the only person it's good for is the teachers unions because a lot of these teachers. Okay, so I'll I'll talk in the first person. I'm a college professor. Right. I teach classes uh, at a, at a university called American University in DC. It's much easier to teach class online, right? It's much easier, and in a lot of ways, it's pretty fun because you get to teach how you want, and you don't have to put on any pants if you don't want. I always <laughs> do. I always do, of course. But my point is like. You Let's be clear be about that, over. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be clear, I, I definitely wear pants. The whole, whole point here is that it's much easier to teach from your home office or your living room rather than actually go to work and, right. and do all that. But we're paying these teachers not just to be teachers, but also to be role models and mentors and disciplinarians, and they're not doing any of that. Now, college professors are different. I don't have to be disciplinarian, but uh, an elementary school teacher does. And so the fact that they're not doing that and these, these kids are just uh, running amok, I think we're going to have a whole year of lost, or hopefully not, a, but a year and a half of lost 
productivity from our children and lost learning that you're never going to get back. No. Well, that rolls me into the next question, which is our whole rate. Okay. Cause that, that's a COVID response. And I, and I've often wondered that uh, this makes no sense at all because see Daniel, here's what I don't understand. Even from the beginning of, and it was about March of last year when this, this whole lockdown business started. But from the beginning, we could go to Walmart, we could go to a liquor store, we could go to gyms, even uh, many gyms opened up at least to a limited basis fairly early on. There were things that you could do, but you couldn't go to work, your kids couldn't go to school, you can't, you know, there's things that you can't do, but yet you can go to, you can go to Walmart, you can go to a Target, you can go to a Home Depot, you can go to these different places. So it never made sense for me. And in fact, um, while COVID has been going on, I've been traveling around the United States. I get on an American Airlines flight, not one empty seat. Every flight I'm on, not one empty seat, and there's people all over the airport. So either we are mishandling the, our response to COVID or airports and Walmarts are COVID-free zones. Those are safety zones. Yeah. Okay, yeah, apparently. can you explain apparently. this to me? Because I don't understand this at all. Uh, I, <laughs> I, well, I, as you know, I have a PhD, so you can call me doctor, but I can't help <laughs> you with, I can't help you with why an infectious disease is dangerous in church, but not in a liquor store. I can't help you with why an infectious disease is, is dangerous in your own home, having some friends over, but not in an airport. I mean, I think that's absurd. And it's clear that, Here's what happens. So I'm a policy professor, so I have to go down this route. Right. What happens is the leftists sense that they've opened a policy window right now, and they're going to be able to jam through whatever policy they want, massive government expansion, massive infrastructure bills that have nothing to do with infrastructure, massive tax increases, an overhaul of the healthcare system, on and on and on and on, as long as they keep the policy window open. And so their goal is to keep this policy window opening open by keeping people afraid, keeping people terrified. Now, COVID, yes, dangerous disease. Please don't get it, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, if you do get it, I wish you well in your recovery. Mm -hmm. The point, though, is that what they're trying to do is keep people terrified as long as possible. I live in this neighborhood, and I, I think we've all seen this, but I have to tell the story. So, so there's this couple. They're probably, I don't know, they, they look like late 50s, early 60s, you know, um, upper middle age couple. They've been walking. They walk every day. I see them walking virtually every day. They both wear like two masks with the respirator type things and, and the whole thing. They're walking. They're holding hands while they walk. And even in the heat of summer, they're both wearing like jeans and coats, which is bizarre to me, but whatever. Anyway, but they're walking every single day and they're out. I mean, the closest anybody's ever been to them, I think, is like 50 yards. And they're obviously married or at least, you know, in the same household. Mm -hmm. And and yet they're wearing masks. What does that tell you? To me, it tells me that they're terrified and terrified people make bad policy. Terrified people uh, go along with government expansions that are that are truly doing what Barack Obama said he was going to do, which is transforming America in his image. Mm -hmm. uh, it just took him, you know, a few more years and a Donald Trump presidency presidency in between to make that happen. But what we're seeing right now is unprecedented, and the only way it can continue is if the Democrats keep everybody terrified. And that's why COVID has gotten politicized, is because they need it to be politicized. They need us to be afraid in order for them to be successful. And you know what really bothers me about that, Daniel, is the work that I do. I, I work with a lot of folks that already have fairly significant mental health issues, addiction issues, depression issues. 
the general public is succumbing to the fear that you're talking about. But there are many people that had significant fear of a lot of different things before COVID hit. And the people, the, the, all these policies and all this fear mongering is having a devastating effect on these people that I wonder if as a nation we're ever going to re- recover from. I, uh, several episodes ago in the Mark Vine show, I talked about a woman that when I was coming back from Ohio on one of my trips out there uh, at a post-critical incident seminar, um, a woman sitting next to me on the airplane that was in a full Tyvek suit. She had uh, a sweatshirt, you know, a sweatshirt with a hoodie on underneath that. She had the, the, the booties, the, the gloves, the mask on, and then even a hoodie underneath that she, she even put around the mask so that would further prevent any air reaching, reaching her face and the gloves. And it was just, it was unbelievable. She even told me when we were on the plane, she said she felt silly, but it just scared her to death to get on the airplane. And I thought to myself, what in the world have we come to where this woman lives in this kind of fear to leave her house? The, you're right. Those are the, How do we make policies when we people live are living like that? This has just been a, such a disservice. And I saw in, in one of your debates, Mark Werner came at you pretty hard with that. In fact, he tried to attack you over your stance on wearing a mask, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he did. Um, so his, his argument was basically that uh, I had said, I'd said in a sort of lighthearted comment, I basically said that a government that's, it wasn't a lighthearted comment, it's a serious policy point, but mm-hmm. that a government that I'm for wearing masks, but the, that a government that's strong enough to mandate masks is one that we should all be deeply skeptical of and mm-hmm. scared of. And his whole thing became, you know, my opponent says masks are tyranny. Uh, not really what I said and deliberate twisting of my words. But the, the point was that, yeah, he did use that to attack me in mailers on tv and and uh in a debate what's your prognosis for the future of our response to covid do you see us opening up uh quicker or uh what would you so if had you been elected to the senate what would you be advocating right now well i think we for one thing we ought to stop pretending like more federal spending is going to stop the you know virus and for another thing you know there's a lot of people who are getting things like stimulus checks who never took a financial hit at all. I mean, the number of people, about 100 million people are going to get stimulus checks from this latest uh, round of, of stimulus. And only a small fraction of those people actually lost their jobs. And most people don't know that that the, the relief, the quote unquote relief went to a whole bunch of people who may or may not have lost their jobs. And I think that's a mistake. I think that, you know, expanding unemployment benefits briefly and some of that is fine. But what's not fine is using this as a as a way to raid the treasury or in this case the treasury is empty but to charge up the government credit card so um, what so, do you what do you yeah. make of what do you make of our policies right now from the biden administration because it seems to me we are at breakneck speed not only with the stimulus that you were just talking about but the opening of the borders uh the reestablishing of our uh, relationship with the uh, nu- nuclear nuclear situation in Iran and on of that. I mean, d- how are we going to survive the next four years? I mean, we are dismantling just about everything I- as quick as possible. Yeah, what I would say first is that, you know, I knew the Biden presidency was going to be a disaster, but I guess I was like most Americans who didn't really realize how bad of a disaster it was going to be. Right. I mean, he is governing so hard left that it's even got, I mean, I'm stunned at how hard left he's going. And I think it's because 
honestly, I think it's, it's sort of sad because it's clear that his mental faculties are not where they once were. And that he, I think it's a case of elder abuse, to be frank. This is a guy who's clearly not all there and he's being run by other people. And it's really pretty sad in, in my opinion. It is. So who do you think's running this? Oh, Kamala Harris. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's Kamala Harris and Barack Obama. Frankly, he's he's sort of the shadow president, and she's the shadow president between the two of them. It's it's hard left. But if you look at like his domestic policy advisor is Valerie Valerie Jarrett. I mean, is there anybody harder left in America than Valerie Jarrett? I don't think so. <laughs> I know, but she's the policy advisor, so that's pretty dangerous in my view. Well, my fear is. The people just aren't paying attention. Again, it goes back to the comment I made earlier about how people are just burned out and tired of this. I mean, the left seems to do a really good job at just wearing people down. And I'm hoping, just hoping that people are paying attention and they stay engaged. And the left is really doing their best to remove our ability to communicate with people. I mean, your ability to communicate with people is, I mean, look at the uh, censoring that's going on on Facebook and, and the fact that we're having to move to Parlor, having to move to Rumble, having to find alternative ways of communicating with one another. Uh, so I hope that people really stay engaged. And so what is your plan? And we'll, we'll kind of wrap up on this. What is, with New Mission Pack, so what is the strategy moving forward to get Republicans in the state of Virginia engaged and or either engaged again, you know, for the first time, because I think that there needs to be a lot of that, or keep people interested and not give up on the state. What What is your plan for that? Well, I think that the Biden administration is doing our bidding for us by creating such terrible policy that Republicans can't help but get involved. So that's going to energize Republicans, frankly. And then the other piece that I'd say to every Virginian is basically, you know, I had this guy, I'll tell you a story. So I had, I had this guy after the election, write me a letter, write me an email on my work email. And he said, he said, look, I've been a Republican activist for 30 years and I have a PhD too. And I don't know why he told me, told me that, but that's what he said. And, and I knew you were going to lose. I knew you were a loser. Mm. I knew you were going to lose. And I knew you were going to lose because I once saw you do an interview without a tie on, you know? Mm. And uh, yeah, that's literally what he said. And, and he said, your campaign was the worst run campaign I've ever seen and blah, blah, blah. So I thought about it and I wrote him back and I said, you know, dear sir, thank you for your note. I appreciate your years of activism, all this stuff. And I said, I just want to, I just want to point out that I have access to my own campaign records and I see that you did not knock a single door, make a single phone call or give a single dollar. And so though, if those tasks so fundamental to any campaign are below you, then it shouldn't surprise you that my campaign was not successful. And if you'd like to put on a class on how to run a great campaign, I look forward to your own campaign. I look forward to you declaring a run for office because, <laughs> and it was, it was pretty funny. Needless to say, he didn't write back. But my point in writing him this was like, look, if you can't lift a finger to help, find a good candidate and grab an oar and start rowing. If you can't lift a finger to help, though, I don't want to hear your criticism. I'm not interested in if, if you're not going to run, help somebody who's running. Uh, well, I guess then, then you've bought whatever the Democrats are send, selling and the decline of our country is on you, you know, because I was in it. I put myself out there. And a lot of people helped me and they went over and beyond. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And then some people just 
jeered and threw rocks from the sidelines. And to those people, I would say, well, you got what you deserved, didn't you? Yeah. And you know what it reminds me of? I'm sure you're familiar with the old Theodore Roosevelt statement, yeah, the man in the yeah, arena, 100%, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. I have it sitting right here on my desk. I'm staring at it, and it's funny. <laughs> I almost got goosebumps as you said what you just said because I happen to be looking right at the man in the arena poem from Theodore Roosevelt. And um, if you'll just kind of oblige me here for a second, I'd like to read it. Is, is that okay with you? Yeah, pl- yeah. please go ahead. Because based on what Daniel just said, and for all of you that are out there that are sitting on the sidelines and are going to criticize, it is this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and in shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows at the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And that is Theodore Roosevelt. And that was so true of your campaign. So my call out, uh, and I'll give you the last word on, on this episode, uh, Daniel, is this. My call out to all you Republicans that are out there that are going to sit and criticize about what Daniel is doing, about what I'm doing, or any other Republican that is out there in the state of Virginia. If you're going to criticize it, I'm going to ask you this. Join in the fight. Join in what we're doing and stop criticizing and start participating. It is easy to criticize what any of us are doing. But here's what I do know. We are leading from where we stand, and you can fight us. You know what? The fight is hard enough against the Democrats. Instead of attacking us, and instead of attacking Daniel, how about you help us fight where the true enemy of this country is? If you haven't noticed in the last 90 or so days, your country is suffering, and it's going to suffer a lot more. We could actually use the help. So why why doesn't everybody get online and help in this particular effort, in this fight? Because I, for one, commend you, Daniel, in doing what you did. You're not a career politician. In fact, I I don't think you had any political background before going into this race. But you took it on, and you knew it was going to be difficult, didn't you? You knew it was going to be difficult. And you sacrificed, and your family sacrificed. We we didn't even talk about that, the effect that this has on your family. So, Daniel, with that, take us out. Take us out and give us your, your last thoughts. Well, I, I that everybody who's listening to this, listening to this, should think about what kind of future they want for their children and their grandchildren. And the Democrats have painted for us a future of government dependency and of larger and larger, more and more intrusive government, and of crushing regulation and of a woke culture that that says the only thing that matters is the color of your skin and not the content of your character. Mm-hmm. The only thing that matters is the color of your skin and not your achievements. Republicans have a different vision, and the vision is of smaller government and individual liberty, and with liberty comes responsibility. So do you want your children to be under the thumb of a dictatorial regime, or do you want your children to be free citizens standing on their own two feet, able to thrive and to dream great dreams? And that's what this is about for me. It's not really about me. I'm fine. You know, I'm 46. I'm on the probably on the latter half of my life now, and, uh, and that's okay. No problem. I've lived a great life. 
what I want to do is make a great life for my children. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's where I would, that's where I'd leave it. I mean, I think we have an opportunity and an obligation to work hard together to do what needs to be done in Virginia and beyond. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate you joining us today here on the Mark Vine Show. And with that, folks, uh, just give me a shout out, give me a follow, give me a like, follow me on Facebook, on Rumble, on Parlor. Go ahead and plug your your information. How how can they get hold of you and uh, New Mission Pack? Yeah, totally. The way to do New Mission Pack is go to newmissionpac.com, newmissionpack.com. You can make a donation there to support Republican candidates. Uh, conservatives, whether they're veterans or not, will be uh, some of the people that will be the people that I'll support. And you can actually send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. It's daniel at newmissionpack.com. Uh, and I would love to do events with you. I'd love to raise money with you. I'd love to fight for our values side by side. Oh, absolutely. So, folks, once again, this is Mark Vines. I appreciate your listening, and we will be talking with you soon. Take care.